0: Hey, Rockheads, put out your oxen and tie up your ass. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 406 with guest Scott Belware, recorded live Thursday, November 20th, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter, Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who rolled down the window on the highway and lost his clip-on antlers, Car.
1: Hi, this is Carl Franklin, and I'm here with Emmy and And Claire, and we're putting up the tree in the recording studio. We just wanted to wish you all Merry Merry Christmas. Christmas. This is our Christmas show. That's right. We're having a show on Christmas this year, and this was recorded at Urdev in Malmo, Sweden, where we talked to Scott Bellware. So let's just roll the tape, shall we? Shall we?
0: Sure. All right. Yeah. Is that okay with you? No.
1: No? No. Why not? No. Ah, Claire's a little shy. Merry Christmas, everybody. Hey, this is Carl Franklin. This is Richard Campbell. We are at Ordev in Malmo, Sweden, live on stage at uh, at some sort of stage here. It's Friday morning. It's the last day of Ordev. And there's a throng of people milling about. Throng. Okay, not really. There's three in the audience, but...
2: Uh, a... it's, it's Friday morning after the late reception And I think uh, folks, uh, including our guests Were dipping into the scotch last night
1: And our guest is none other than Mr. Scott Belware
3: Agent Belware, how are you? I'm great, good to see you guys Excellent, thanks good for having see me see on Good to have you here Good to see you, Scott I thought you promised me in Vancouver That I would never be on .NET Rock I don't <laughs> think I ever said that uh, <laughs> We had a change of heart So you uh,
1: are, are a part of an alt.NET track here Yes. At OrDev. How did that happen?
3: I don't know. Um, it still surprises me. <laughs> um, and I con- you know, and also on the other side of the world, there's an alt.net track at QCon. Very cool. So there's two major conferences Tell happening at Tell us about the same QCon. Time. QCon is a, I, I, I've never been, but I understand. It's, it's the same level of, of, of speaker, mm-hmm. um, multidisciplinary conference, lots of really smart software people. Mm-hmm. Some of the people actually who are here at OrDev jumped on a plane and went back, and they're doing yeah. both conferences. So wow. I think uh, Eric Evans and I think Ted Neward went over as well, too. Yeah, Ted so. left this morning. Very good. So, so what, the question is whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. That's what we've been talking about in the Alt.net conference. Well, Alt.Net.
1: I, I, I saw your your talk yesterday was standing room only, so that's
3: good. Yes, we've had we've had standing room only audiences the whole time, and, and, and I, I really hope that soon we stop. Here's a really funny thing, I think. Maybe you guys can tell me what you think. So this is a great conference. It's very diverse, which yeah. is wonderful, right? Mm-hmm. It's not like, I'm tired of listening to this talk. I'm going to go find another talk, and you get to choose between you know, the the ASP.NET track or the WinForms track or the Smart Client track or the SQL Server track. You can actually go and say, I'm tired of all that. I want to go listen to something in the leadership track or the agility mm-hmm. track. Or, yeah, I mean, they, what, they have what, a Java room dedicated, dedicated just to agility. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's it's great. It's great to just be able to sort of open your mind when you want it, when something fresh. But the other thing I find it's kind of funny. Is that you know we have a Java track here, we have an um, agility track, a testing track, a management track, a .NET track, and another .NET track. Right. Huh. Right. And there's over at QCon they've got all the same thing, and they've got a .NET track and another .NET track. And I think it'd be great one day when you know it's great that we're making a big fuss out of the alt.NET thing right now, but the really good thing happens when we stop having two .NET tracks in these conferences and uh, we have one .NET track. And that's good. I, yeah, I, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because it, you know, there's, it represents a sort of a. We have this ideological schism in the.NET community right now that suggests that we have to have both representations of something that is already. If you look at the Java track, what we are doing in two.NET tracks, the Java track is just doing as one track. What right. we're doing in two.NET tracks, the average Ruby conference does in one track. Why do you track. think that is? Why do you think there are two.NET tracks? Um, because there are fundamentally two approaches to software development in the Microsoft world. What we commonly call out as, just as a name, I think the name is wrong. Call it the, the MSDN way versus the alt.net way. Right. And the MSDN way isn't a good name. I think it's just a pattern name that's stuck, but it's actually kind of a little bit, it's a little bit insulting to the accomplishment of MSDN and, and certainly Howard Durking, who, you know, was a great editor for the magazine and so forth and, sure. and, the, and the site and the content. Hmm. Um, but we have fundamentally two different ways of developing software. The, the way that's tool-oriented, that supports Microsoft's imperatives, And the way that's, you know, practice-oriented that supports other imperatives. So uh, if you're using tools, you're not practice-oriented? I think if you're using tools to the exclusion of consideration of practices. Or if your first choice is tools and then you figure out the practices. Versus if you figure out the practices first and then find the tools that support those things. And the two don't seem to mesh to you? They don't seem to mesh in the .NET community. I think as much as the, as the other communities. They should mesh. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I'm hoping we you know we get beyond this and then there's no need for my goal hopefully is that there's no need for alt.net soon. It's better sooner than later. Don't you guys use tools in, in the alt.net side? Yeah. So what tools are we talking about? More than likely the same tools. <laughs> okay. We just use them differently, right? Okay. Like Visual Studio is an absolute must if you're doing yeah. .net development. I mean, I, I, so if I'm coding in Ruby, I'll probably just use notepad. Hmm. Uh, it's funny when I switch over to C sharp, you know, I just think that I should use Visual Studio, it, yeah. and it's just a habit, and I think it's a good habit. I think it's a great editor. I think you know the one tool that everybody needs is a great editor, period, yeah, that's always been true for software development, right? Mm. whether or not we need something as feature rich, uh, I think would be a polite way to say it for Visual Studio as Visual Studio, I think is a different question, so. I tend to prefer You'd... more lightweight tools Okay, right. Um, and prefer many small tools that I can integrate, but I don't really need to integrate them all into one visual shell. Uh-huh. My visual shell is usually Windows, and I'm fine that they all integrate in Windows, mm-hmm. but I'm not really concerned that they integrate all into one visual studio. Are we Same really talking
1: it, about a, a, a criticism of some of the tools of Microsoft? I'm always
3: talking about <laughs> the criticisms of tools of Microsoft. Should we just go there? Sure, if you want. I mean, you know, Should, oh. I'm very public about you sure. know, my alternative lifestyle on the runtime.: Yeah, it's well, got it. Let's it. Let's hear it. Um, let's see. I think the real challenge that we have uh, and I've had really great conversations with a lot of great people from Microsoft about the same thing, and I think there's mm-hmm. lots of movement in Microsoft to get what I, I you know, I'll call it rehabilitation mm-hmm. of what Microsoft does. And I think Microsoft sees, tends to see competition. Necessarily, and by default, as a negative, as opposed to a neutral thing. so um, and I tend to see competition usually as a positive thing. It's going to drive innovation, and sure, it might take some opportunities away from people. It always who, has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I don't think Microsoft needed to create a testing framework, for example, as a great, great example, MS test. not really necessary. I don't really think it needed to create Team Foundation Server. I think it really could have just looked out into the world and said, here's some great products. Let's build the integration. Let's build the integration that makes Visual Studio the place to go to use these products. As opposed to saying, let's start from scratch and build a whole new testing framework or a whole new version control system or a whole new work item tracker so that we can integrate it with Visual Studio. So I'm happy that they're integrated with Visual Studio. The fact that they had to start from zero again means that we're starting a whole new product cycle over with immature products, and then we have to wait till these things mature before the .NET community. And the .NET community tends to only look to Microsoft for tooling advice, uh, by and large. And I think this is different. And this is why the alt.NET community is different. Mm -hmm. We're looking for what's available typically right now, Mm -hmm. what's mature, Mm
1: -hmm.
3: without waiting for Microsoft to reinvent or recreate or or re-engineer something that we already have. So... I think that's a significant, so, uh, significant part of the So what's your preferred testing framework, then? Well, right now I kind of use a I use a, a testing framework that's a little esoteric that probably nobody knows about. Uh, it's called uh, machine specification. It's a framework that changes. We're in the midst of a transition from traditional unit testing or the unit testing we've had for 10 years. All the unit test frameworks that look like JUnit. Right. So NUnit and M- um, Test and NBUnit. All tend to look. It all like, came more or less from JUnit, right? The XUnit family, right? Right. And now we have, of course, XUnit .dot net that Jim Newkirk and Brad Wilson did, which is a, a sort of it's a testing framework and it's also a meta framework that you can create other testing frameworks with. Hmm. Yeah. Same thing with Galio, right? And, and the MB Unit, uh, Jeff, Brown from MB Unit, also conceived of this notion of a meta framework, a framework that you could create other frameworks from. Um, and then we have this other thing going on called, you know. Uh, well, Those two names for it are two different sub practices behavior driven development and what a bunch of us call context specification, where we're taking the, the language of the business, where you might write a test method that says something like, you know, test, you know, foobar method throws exception, right? We tend to find now that we're trying to solve another problem, which is creating code that's usable or uh, introduce the concepts of usability mm-hmm. and scannability, the same way we do with web pages, introduce that to code to increase productivity, solve... It's kind of like the next frontier, I think, for Agile development in solving productivity issues Mm -hmm. is dealing with clean code and code that can be scanned. So when we look at tests like this, we're starting to change the test names so that they don't talk about the implementation of the code. They talk about what the code does. So in such and such a circumstance, this is the behavior of the system. Or I'll set up a, you know, uh, when transferring funds from from my checking account to my savings account... Um, you know, should remove the amount from the savings account. Should the add the account. amount to the check. Yeah, right. Yeah. I'm not sure what which order I got it in. Yeah. So we're starting to talk about we're starting to write our tests in a way that look more like specifications. Right. And while we do this, we're harkening back to the original language and guidance from test driven development that always said the code, the test code was supposed to be a document. What we're finding is we're only starting to achieve that now. And we were always just saying that. Oh, if you write unit tests, uh, you'll have good documentation, right? And you, we didn't you really. To,
2: you, but you have to read the unit tests and translate it into this is what this actually tests.
3: Exactly, and you can't. Do, and often you can't do that by looking at the test names. Um, and often you have one test class for one functional code class, and right. that one test class represents a myriad of different circumstances that you'd run that test through. So your setup test method might be 20 lines long because it's setting up all kinds of preconditions that have nothing to do with each other. Mm. Right.
2: Uh, They're all the possible preconditions for all the tests. Exactly. And you can't
3: just look at that one one file, that one code file, and say, oh, this is how the system behaves. You know the system behaves well because you can press the button and see the green light and know that it works well. But when you go back in to look at the code, it's just another mess. Like, what did we do with unit testing? We doubled the size of the messy code we maintained and kept the team size static. Mm -hmm. Basically... We proved the systems work, but we didn't really go, for, go far enough in improving productivity. Okay. okay. So that's what we're trying to address now. We're trying to address this, what I think of as a next frontier of productivity in terms of usability in code. And it fundamentally changes the way we do testing. And it makes it so much better that we end up with the ability to export the test names and walk over to maybe a business analyst and say, I heard you say such and such when you gave me the requirements for funds transfer. And here's what I wrote in the code. Can you take a quick look at this and tell me if I got it right? Because if my assumptions are wrong, let's nail that now. Because right. it's going to be real cheap to fix right now. In fact, I might just write out the test names There's a specification in code, and then go fill them in. So what I tend to do now uh, with, with my work with Mingle, I'll work with a UX designer, and we'll work through some, some, some page comps. And then I'll immediately start writing, use this context specification pattern to write out specifications. And they work, it's a very simple grammar. When, some condition, um, should, blah, 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 should, blah, blah, blah. And the shoulds are a bunch of you know sentences that are just observations. So right. It's, it's, a, it's a deceptively simple and amazingly powerful. Because it introduces the business language in and stitches design requirements, UX design, uh, expectations, quality control. Stitches the whole thing together with a common language. These is, are just
2: sorry. No good. These are just the names. You still have to make sure the code reflects the name.
3: Exactly. Yeah. But what we're doing with the code is we're, we're reducing this you know this problem I said of this one giant test file. Right. We're reducing that to many small test classes. Where I might have a test class, and this is a hard thing for traditional unit testing guys to get their heads around. I might have a test, and often do have test classes in .NET that have one setup method. And one test method. And that's it? Yeah. And I'm okay with that. And it takes a little bit of getting used to, because we're used to, and people have said, this is, there's a hundred classes here to test one class. What we're really saying is, yes, but there's a hundred different ways to use this class. And so let's capture them in smaller units. And it's really not smaller. The real issue here is, I could write it in one file, one code class. Right. But the cognitive unit is small enough that I can glance at and understand, rather than Decipher, right? You don't have so, to. Research. So the, so the class usability is way up. up.
2: The class is more of an area of concern for testing than it is a, a specific the, the class that you're in, testing against.
3: In fact, the one of the original experimental implementations we had for this, we just did it over the top of NUnit. Um, then we changed the name of text the test fixture or test class in MSTest, Test mm-hmm. to concern, right. And then mm. the test runner would pick up concern. And we put a little bit of, of English language, with concern, and, you know, the, the, the .NET, I'm doing it with sure. my hands. Yeah, what do yeah. they call the attributes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'd but, open up an attribute and say concern, and, you know, concern, funds transfer. Right.
2: So here you, are my concerns around funds transfer. And, yeah. And, and so, I mean, you just described a scenario where you're saying, I got one setup and, and really one task. But if I'm concerned about funds transfers, there's a bunch of different tests I want to do. But it sounds to me like you're really the unit of, uh, of definition is one setup. Yep, absolutely. Given moving money from here to here, here are the 15 things I want to check.
3: Well, this is the problem with unit testing. With, with Well, uh, one of the problems, once you build this giant code base of unit tests right. and then are called to maintain them forever, um, when you look at the setup code, and the setup code sets up many different circumstances or conditions... Right it becomes really, really difficult to get to, to maintain the, that code, let alone use that code to maintain your system. Getting back to this idea of self-documenting code with that, tests, which, exactly what it is. which we talked about. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, wanted to say, so you asked me the, the, the test framework I'm working on, yeah. I work with, it, it, machine spec is the framework. I'm using a specification framework now rather than a okay. test framework.
1: This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik who bring you this special message. What's more important for your web applications? High performance on the server or on the client? How about footprint? Number of server requests? There are so many potential bottlenecks that can drag your application performance, and of course, there is no universal solution for them. The good news is the guys from Telerik understand the complexity of that problem. When building their UI components, they isolate every probable source of performance loss. Then they apply a respective solution for different products, different scenarios, and even different browsers. The techniques vary dramatically. As a result, you, the developer, receive out-of-the-box, highly reliable components that are optimized in every aspect of their behavior. I'm sure you'll be interested to learn more about the various performance-boosting techniques for web applications. Just go to tellerik.com/top-performance for details and live demos. So, well, I'm Let's curious to around. to hear your thoughts about domain-specific languages. One of the and, things. And do they? Does this get us any closer?
3: Oh, to... Yeah. Oh yeah. So this is this goes. is a you know there's a lot of canonical you know use cases for domain specific languages. Um, the one we always hear about, of course, and we'll continue to hear about, is a state machine or workflow, right? Um, but uh, in Ruby, we we have a lot of already domain specific languages for context specification or behavior driven development, which is that the the initial inception name. Uh, the, the The initial name for this um, there's two different grammars for doing this yeah, it sounds kind of similar so there's actually. a give and win then grammar in behavior driven development uh-huh. where the framework actually says give in uh, you know a a checking account with twenty dollars uh, when transferring twenty dollars to savings then savings has twenty dollars and uh, twenty dollars more then so that's one grammar, and I use this other grammar called. Context specification, which is much more lo-fi. It's just, mm. you know, when, and then a bunch of, and then one, to, then a bunch of thens. Okay. So, we do this already in Ruby with, 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 uh, domain-specific languages. The, the most popular one right now, I think, is RSpec, and another one is called Shoulda, which is a, a lightweight framework. It's a good name. Mm, shoulda. Yeah. <laughs> so, when, you know, and it just says, I mean, the framework only has one, you know, big keyword for testing. Shoulda, or should, blah, 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 should, blah, blah, blah. We use this should right. term a lot. Um, yeah. so, the yesterday, I, I think I can't remember who who said it. Uh, somebody's pet project with Oslo is to build a domain specific language for, for context specification style testing or executable specifications. Oh yeah, for mm. .net, and it's a perfect mm. it's perfect use for domain specific language. Did you see any of the Oslo stuff at PDC? Uh, no, I haven't looked at it yet. Or online? I yeah. didn't go to PDC, but I, I've I've been told that there's a pile of things that, that I that I need to go and check out. That are I think in the, Richard in and videos. I are
1: still trying to wrap our heads around it and try to try to. F- find the simplicity. I mean, I didn't see the simplicity. I haven't seen it yet. I, well, I saw something that looked a little bit more complex than I expected.
3: So we're, we, we, we tend to kid around a little bit about, about Oslo and M, because trying to get our heads right. around. And it's so early, right? Who knows yeah. what it's going to be? Yeah. yeah. But, you know, um, my pet project with, with Oslo is to create a domain-specific language over M. <laughs> okay and when i get that dumb, done i uh, when i get that done i want to i want to then use oslo to re-implement fox pro
2: nice awesome yeah okay <laughs> and bring it back that'll
3: be my proof of concept
2: yeah your proof of concept when you make a version of fox pro rum because of oslo exactly fox pro <laughs>
3: over 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 active record and then hibernate <laughs> it's bad
2: it's completely bad <laughs> who knows but this is not just about tooling around testing,
3: right? There's a lot of different tools you use. Um, yeah, well, I mean, somebody, somebody actually, one of the guys from Sweden sort of did a, did a talk yesterday in the .NET track, in the alt.NET track, about the different sets of tools that sort of differentiate. I mean, you can differentiate. We tend to not use a lot of the Microsoft tooling because it tends to be, you know, NUnit existed for seven years. No, right. not seven years. Five six years before MS Test came up, right? So mm-hmm. when M- M- MS Test came up, it was a one zero, mm-hmm. where NUnit was already very mature. So we tend to use the most mature tools, right? Um, so you know we use testing frameworks like NUnit, MbUnit, uh, MSpec now increasingly, xunit.net, .net uh, that that uh, the guys that uh, Patterns or, or Brad and, and Jim Newkirk built, um, yeah. Um, but there are still some guys who use MS test. I mean, when you walk into a shop, a corporate shop that has been told to use MS test, you you gotta make the best of it. Right. Mm Um, and then, you know, Jamie Cansdale augmented the visual studio testing experience by sort of finishing MS test by making it work inside visual studio with a mouse click, not by going to the GUI pane and, clicking on the green lights and the red lights and the test name, but actually just running it right from the code. Um, Mm. I think MS Test does that now. First generation, it didn't. So even though we're using, when we have to come across the Microsoft tooling, typically somebody will do something to augment it and and bring it up to the level of the more mature tools. So for source control, uh, um, you know, we're the subversion crowd. It's simple, lightweight, it works. And right now, a bunch of people are migrating off to the new fascination, which is Git, um, distributed source control systems. So... MSpec, for example, so the source code for MSpec is held in on GitHub, which is like kind of like a codeplex um, that a lot of Ruby guys use. That use the the Git source control system. Sounds like you guys use a lot of tools. We use a lot of tools. Uh, you know, of course, we use Hibernate and we use yeah. a myriad of dependency inversion containers. And I just did a rocky cheer with his hand like a studio. <laughs> um, we <laughs> use the castle. We use Castle MonoRail and yep. and, yeah. and, and you know. Um, um, we definitely use a lot of tools but the tools don't tend to be the 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 mainstream tools I guess.
1: Yeah yeah. Well like you said before you use the most mature
2: tools you can find. You said, Absolutely. Yeah, SVN yeah. is wildly popular everywhere except the Microsoft
3: space. Um yeah, it's it's a little bit shocking. I yeah. think it's a little bit and and I and I think that's that talks about whatever the underlying predisposition that is in the people in the Microsoft community. That's the thing that's also generating the, 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 the circumstances where we can go to a conference like QCon or we can go to a conference like Oradev and have two separate Microsoft tracks. That's the schism. Mm. Mm. Whatever's generating that schism is also generating this notion that subversion is wildly popular everywhere else. Hibernate is wildly popular everywhere else. Um, but in the Microsoft space, I think customers are looking to Microsoft for guidance on what to do and when to do it. And I think that's fine. Um, but I think it means that Microsoft takes advantage when it doesn't have a test tool. It didn't. It waited till 2005 mm-hmm. to tell the mainstream Microsoft customers that unit testing was a good thing. Uh, it waited till 2007 until Entity Framework was coming up and uh, Link to SQL was coming up to say that ORM is a good thing. Yeah. Well, okay. I don't think this is where we disagree a
1: little bit. I don't think that's what they're saying by bringing out a product. I think they're saying the community is using these tools. We don't have one. We need one because we need to have something
3: in that space that we can use. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, it's just it by seems not seeing, like... Yeah. By not seeing something, we're saying something, right? By Microsoft folks never talking about ORM until 2006, 2007. Well, no, it's only because they don't have a product, but I think
1: anybody, well, that's out, what I'm anybody saying. out there in the, in the .NET community doesn't take everything that Microsoft says as, oh, well, Microsoft said it, so it must be... You know, this must be the way it goes. I mean, there's a whole community around I think .dot that, net with people, including including Richard and I, and the regional directors and the MVPs. And but you guys and other, we don't just, just, by just by the
3: nature of coming to a conference to the party line. You're kind of already in the in in sort of a different cast of characters. Yeah. By being a regional director, you're already in a different cast of characters. Yeah. We're just simply you and I and Richard. We're just simply not representative. Yeah, the mainstream developer. Exactly. Yeah. And the mainstream developer, and you know, uh, when you walk out into a consulting gig and Franz Balma, you know, really, I think you said something really profound on his show with you guys about, uh, ORM that, you know, a lot of us are consultants. And it's not that we're looking for consulting where, but when we walk on a project, we want the most mature tools. Sure. And what we typically get is the least mature tools. Mm. Because the mainstream of Microsoft, which is not represented by you and I, is, towing the party line and it's not about towing the party line it just doesn't know any better Yeah, and it's looking to Microsoft you think
1: it's the path of, of least resistance for most uh, it's the, companies the, you know
3: nobody got fired for buying IBM right the old yeah. adage right? and now now it's Microsoft not IBM in it's Microsoft and then, right. and
2: then in 10 years it's going to be Google
3: but the interesting so, thing yeah. is
2: that all these products are all free all those
3: unit test frameworks are free Yeah. including Microsoft's Well, I think a lot of the Microsoft community interestingly enough and oddly enough Tends to look to Microsoft as a successful software business to mm-hmm. say, if we're going to be successful at software, we should emulate a successful software business. So Microsoft is one. Let's do it like Microsoft, without ever stepping back and saying, Microsoft's software business and my software yeah, business are I'm simply not the same. different. So utterly why different. the hell would I do that? Microsoft is maintaining, you know, ten years of legacy C and COM yeah. code in Office. Yeah. Why would I use their software methods? We yep. never stop to say, like their methods are probably not the methods well, that I need.
2: And they build operating systems. And they build and they, exactly, languages. I mean, exactly. It's just stuff we exactly. don't do.
3: So, so when, when the community looks to Microsoft for guidance, it tends to look to Microsoft, the mainstream, exclusively to Microsoft for guidance. Right. And it gets guidance about how to build Microsofts, how to build software, if you were Microsoft. Not if you were Citibank. Yeah. Which is kind of screwed up. And you end up with this, I think, really doctrinal... At the, at the um, end, of the, day, at the end of the day, doesn't
1: it come down to having enough faith in the public to say, I can dis- I, I'm smart enough to look at tool X and tool Y and decide for myself which one is
3: a better tool for me? Sooner or later, with enough maturity and experience, you'll be able to make that decision. But Who? when MS Test came out in 2005, the mainstream Microsoft community simply didn't have that experience to get the perspective that leads you to that decision. Yeah. And then you get lock-in. Right, so you adopt a tool like like MS Test, and you build. Like I said, you double the size of your code base. You're never gonna. You're not really just gonna go and switch off MS Test. So I think I think what I hear you saying is that most
1: people out there in the .NET community are monkeys that will just take whatever comes from Microsoft and not think for themselves about tool X and tool Y.
3: You're kind of setting is that me what up. You're, you're kind of setting I mean, me up. It sounds like, like, like that's I'm what you're saying. I'm comfortable with that statement. I'm yeah. absolutely perfectly comfortable with that statement. Um, and I think that I'm, I'm comfortable with it because when we get off microphone, mm-hmm. I'll say it on mic. Mm-hmm. I thank you for, for, for giving me the opportunity to admit that that's the way I think. I think a lot of people say that in private. Yeah. I've heard a lot of people say it in private. I've heard some very, very notable Microsoft community people say that off mic or off blog. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what, what a lot of folks already know. Okay. So let's call a spade a spade and say, yeah, a lot of people mindlessly adopt what Microsoft tells them to adopt, and does it at a timeline only when Microsoft's ready to ship a product. So let's go back to ORM. There was a wonderful conversation in a blog that goes back to like 2004, I think, between Franz Bauma and uh, Rob Howard, um, when we were all sort of talking about ORMs, and Franz, of course, was way out early with LLBLGen, and now it's a very, very mature product. But there was this great dialogue back in the day about Stored procs, and I'm sure you'll appreciate this, this sure. Richard. Stored procs versus um, oh, yeah, SQL, gener- SQL din- yeah. Well, we call it dynamic sequel, right? sure. SQL, SQL generated, generated in the middle SQL, tier. Generated SQL, yeah. Um, so parameterized SQL, I think, is what we tend to call it. And, and this sure. is back when Rob Howard worked for ASP.NET. Work no. Worked for ASP.NET. Yeah. yeah. So and you know the, the 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 dialogue is still out there in the in the public, but it's and it's but it's really representative of Microsoft didn't have an ORM strategy. So Microsoft people, of course, are not really talking about that. Mm. But it built a predisposition amongst the Microsoft employees and Microsoft workforce to suggest that you, you couldn't ever po- – I mean, I remember this. We have a different I- ideology now, but mm. we always used to say, you would only ever use stored procs. You should never ever use Dynamic SQL. Yeah. Now we that used we've to got say to that,
1: where... we used to say that before the tools needed to use Dynamic SQL. Sure, well, but the tools know, you know, always s- needed to
2: use them. We also used to
3: say that back when
2: stored procedures were a dramatic advantage. They, yeah, they just aren't anymore. True, mm-hmm. but I could still pull you out versions of SQL Server where the stored proc version runs dramatically faster than the the, the Dynamic SQL. And we years. don't want to get into the to the whole debate here, but I mean, the one side says. You
3: have
1: the security issues, you have the DBAs mm-hmm. versus your So I, work for a, I mean,
3: it's kind of a mess. I work for a social media startup, and we have, uh, you probably imagine the kind of stuff that runs in social media, the amount of messaging going back and forth yeah. between the database, yeah. suggests that some of those technologies, like ORM, probably not the best idea, right? Mm. So we do when, a lot when, of stored products. When procs. all that matters is performance. Exactly. When all that matters is performance, mm. your code tends to look like a video driver. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. not like a domain-specific <laughs> well, language. That's, you're exactly right,
2: because video drivers are all right. about
3: performance. Right. When you when you optimize for performance, you de-optimize for understandability, and readability, right? And, right. And, readability and, and you gotta do it. And that's just that's all there is. That's how yeah. it is. But when we talk about now, we're talking about ORM in the Microsoft space, and it's right. becoming okay to talk about dynamic SQL, and it's becoming okay to talk about SQL Server in different circumstances. Yeah, when you're in this kind of performance profile, and this kind of load, and you can use ORM, then use it, and you'd use Dynamic SQL. Well,
1: maybe it's just because nobody was really using ORMs in Microsoft, right?
3: Is that, is that why? Absolutely. But we still knew, even back then, that it was okay to use Dynamic SQL. So sure. What I'm getting at is, and I think, uh, we have levels of maturity in the alt.net community that are supported by the levels of maturity of these existing products. Yeah, We're not waiting for Microsoft to re-engineer them. And I think that it's odd that we call this an alternative lifestyle on the runtime that looking (laughs) to mature products and looking to the guidance here at Ordev of the Java community. I don't get no respect.
1: (laughs) I tell you (laughs) of the Java
3: community, of the Ruby community, of the project management community, of the, of the testing community and look to, you know, folks that have been in the business like you guys for a long, long time and look to experience and find that Microsoft isn't really on the bleeding edge. For a lot of things. In a lot of ways, it is on the bleeding edge. But those things that it isn't, we should be aware of that. Sure. And we should, look for, we should look to other communities for solutions. No, yeah, I don't really know that, that we've I ever th- looked at Microsoft
2: as the bleeding edge company, right? They're the yeah. guys who commoditize follow, right? technologies. Yeah, right. That's so true. So what, what,
3: what, what would Microsoft be if they didn't have to incur the cost and the bloat of creating a new found, team foundation server and a, a new MS test? And what if they would lean up? Well, and, they're going to do that. I mean, they have to. They're a software company. They have to have a product in that space. I think they could have had a product that was that was an integration with the existing tools and provided even more value. I look, I look at Microsoft and I'm think, I just, I'm dying for simplicity in Microsoft. You look at the Windows. That'll page, never happen. Come, on, of course, it can happen. No, it'll never happen. Some market, if if they start losing, uh, if the market pressures them, if they start losing a toehold. And every empire fades sooner or later. Microsoft just might be one of those ones that goes on for 500 Microsoft years. Microsoft has legal issues that you and I only begin to think about. I think Microsoft thinks it has legal issues that we, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, but the legal issues aren't causing them to have 12 different versions of Vista. No. There no. should be.
2: I, I like. Actually, to... that's not true. It was, I mean, many of those versions of Vista were created because the, the European Union insisted on them. Really, absolutely, I didn't right? Know that. Remember, they had to I make, it make know that they either. had to make right. a version of XP corrected. without Media Center without well, I do remember player. that. Right? I mean, that exactly those things happened to them. I mean, we, I don't want to
1: downplay that yeah. legal problem. And, I you think know, we're fine, the first, first to say create, that it's
3: pretty crazy. Oh, I, I it's think, mad. I think that you can create a version. Let's go back. I think there's a ver- you can create a version of XP without Media Player. And I think let's just say for grins that Microsoft one person bought it. Yeah. If if you if you had a version of Microsoft that let's say practiced. Uh, composition over inheritance and test-driven development. You might have actually ended up with an operating system where media player could be plugged in post-install, easily, over the net. Might have made for a big update, but I tell you what: when you install XP or Vista and you got to go through Microsoft Update, you're gonna get a new version of media player anyway. So why not just make the whole damn thing pluggable and simplify the whole thing through 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 software design? I think that it would be great if you went to the Microsoft page, Vista page, and you saw two things. Vista Server, or Microsoft Windows Server, and Microsoft Windows Desktop. And when you went to the Office page, you saw one thing, Microsoft Office. Mm-hmm. And all of these things were simplified by good software design and good deployment strategies, and just simplified the whole damn thing, both for Microsoft and for the community, and for people who are concerned with licenses.
1: Microsoft has another issue that you don't have, which is backward compatibility to 1970-something, Right. Yeah, you know, I, mean, I kind take, take a look at Telerik, okay? They've been a sponsor of our mm-hmm. stuff. They, ha- they had a significant advantage over other tool vendors because they started at .NET. They did not have a lot of legacy code, they had no combat. They baggage. had no baggage. I yeah. mean, the Microsoft has more baggage than any other software
3: company. But I think it also is significantly uh, participating in creating much of the baggage. So if you don't want baggage, there's going to be necessary Microsoft baggage. A company. They, there's going to be accidental baggage, and then there's going to be essential baggage. Yeah. I think Microsoft creates a lot of unnecessary baggage. Now, with the necessary baggage, I agree with you. They've got it back up. Well, it's true. Baguette. They have. A, they put out a lot of products, and not all of them are wild
1: successes. Hey, I just want to give a shout-out real quick to our friends at Data Dynamics, who uh, make ActiveReports.net, among other really awesome things. ActiveReports.net is great because uh, it allows you to just build your reports with an easy editor, Embed them right in your application. Provide PDF and HTML output. Give your end users a report editor, royalty-free, of course. A great access report upsizing wizard. And all this for a price that isn't going to break the bank. ActiveReports.net from Datadynamics. Go check it out now at
3: datadynamics.com. You, yeah. you, was that a lead-in for me to? Uh, pick no. Up? No. Well,
1: yeah. Let's get, let's <laughs> get let's back. talk about blah, Let's blah, blah. get back to your <laughs> list of products I hate.
3: Um, <laughs> did, <laughs> Productscotthates.com. Um, I, I don't. Well, I mean, if I mean, or oh, you don't uh, like. I
2: don't.
1: I
3: don't, I don't, yeah, like, I don't like. a lot of Microsoft products, but I, I like yeah. a lot of Microsoft products. I said uh, recently somewhere that you know, the alt community is not anti Microsoft. It's anti crap. Good and when Microsoft we should creates, be anti crap. Yeah, we should all. are all anti crap. And when Microsoft creates crap, we should be okay with saying, "Hey, Microsoft, that's really crap." And when Microsoft creates good stuff, we should be okay with saying, "Wow, that's really great stuff." But I don't think we should be, you know, this kind of community that says we have to get behind everything that Microsoft does because we have to support Microsoft. My God, Microsoft's a multi-billion-dollar company. I think it I could personally handle don't know
1: anybody who has that opinion.
3: I know lots of people who have yeah. the. Wait, you know, it's it's a derogatory term. We call them the fanboys, right? There's a lot of Microsoft fanboys out there. Yeah, world. I don't know anybody who has that. I honestly don't. And I met hundreds and
1: hundreds, maybe even thousands of people in this business, and and most of the people that I talk to say, well, you know, I like this about this product. I don't like this. Maybe they could do this a little bit better. You know, these are my suggestions. Uh, I'm going to use this product because I don't like this product. I didn't use Vista for the longest time, and let's face it, you know, when that thing came out, it was very, very difficult to use. There was, especially if you were trying to boot up off a RAID drive, or any IPD kind of thing issues. that requires a driver, right? It was horrible. And I didn't use it for the longest time. Now I do because the drivers are there.
3: I kind of... So it, I, I kind of... Microsoft lost me at Vista. That's when I yeah. switched over to Mac OS, um, and I run, you know, XP, well, I run, I run both so. XP. XP for me now is a is a reasonable host for Visual Studio mm-hmm. inside of a virtual machine. Mm-hmm. If I could host Visual Studio and Mac OS. I'd probably go for it, Mm -hmm. Um, but I think that after years and years and years, and and I've just become—I just don't have the patience for low usability anymore. Yeah. Um, I don't have any my my store of goodwill that had you used to be like fathomlessly, you know, bottomlessly immense goodwill built up for Microsoft, you know, back in my early days in community Microsoft, Mm -hmm. Um, but it just got burned out real quick. And I, when Microsoft does something now. That burns my goodwill. I just, I just turn and go the opposite direction. And I think it's also a knee-jerk reaction. I, a lot of guys have been talking lately about so many of the positive steps that Microsoft has been taking to close the gap between alt.net and.net, and .Net. All these great mm-hmm. movements going on. And Glenn Block took, made the effort yesterday to make sure that I was, you know, being realistic about the things that are happening. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm, you know, frankly, you know, I just, not, I'm not paying attention to Microsoft anymore. I'm not paying attention to the great things they're doing either. Unfortunately. But uh, and that's I've got to sort of rebuild my well of goodwill yeah. towards Microsoft, and it's just frankly been spent over the past few years. So
2: what are you building these days? I mean, if you're living in, well, away from the Microsoft world, like what are you doing to build software?
3: Um, uh, I work for Mingle.com, and Mingle is a Java shop. We right. work with Java. Uh, we have uh, Groovy in the mix. Um, we have browser. We have browser add-ons as well. So we're doing C. And the other language that we use a lot is Lua. What's Lua? Lua is um, a scripting language that was, I think, most famous or is most famous right now for being the language that people use to extend World of Warcraft. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Um, It was also used by Adobe to create Lightbox. And it's just a really interesting language that's a lot like JavaScript. Let's say if we had a stable JavaScript implementation that every browser used. we don't. Right. So Lua is a little language that has... um, a, its primary data type is a hash table. Weird. And like JavaScript, you basically do object-oriented programming by adding things to the hash table. It's associative arrays. Yeah. So if I had a person, ha- a hash, ta- hash table named person that had a key name and its value was Carl, I could say person.name. And the syntax kind of looks like object syntax, but mm. it's all hash table. And if I add a, if I add a special hash table into that hash table, that's the meta table. Right. I can mm-hmm. do a little bit of sort of class-oriented programming. With yeah, it. sort of collection-based. Wow. Right. But Lua is a 200k interpreter hmm. written in C, so you can embed it in just about everything. And we embed hmm. it in the browser because hmm. it's a stable language.
2: Yeah, and a quick way to do some some interesting stuff in the
3: browser. Yeah, and if you know some JavaScript, if you know what Java, how JavaScript, or if you know how to do OO in JavaScript, Lua is probably an interesting way, and it's very it's just a very simple language. There's not a lot of, you don't do class-oriented programming. You just kind of do metaprogramming. So no .NET programming for you? Lately? Anymore? Uh, yeah, the first time I saw .NET, actually, I think the first time I fired up Windows uh, in months was was yesterday to do, or a couple of days ago to prep my talks for test-driven development here at the conference. Interesting. Yeah. And
2: that, and that would be XP in a virtual machine on your Mac. XP in VMware. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. I haven't updated, you know, Visual Studio 2008 yet. Right. Uh-huh. So, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely... I'm getting a and little behind the eighth ball on.NET. It's well, kind tired. of odd. You know, it's and, and it's really and it's really, really scary, right? It's so like the ultimate alt.net. It's the ultimate alt.net. No, alt. no. no. Yeah. Well, somebody, yeah, <laughs> somebody actually said a long time ago, how long before alt.net becomes not.net? Yeah. As you look outwards into the world, you tend to be drawn into things. But I look like, you know, I, I look at it like mm. I'm not, .net's never gonna leave me. It's the thing I know best. Yeah. I happen to be working in a Java company now, but um, I tend to do more work now in Ruby um, yeah. than anything else. And what do you th- in the first quarter of 2009, I'm going to have Ruby on on the CLR again. Right, so I mean, well, right I was just going to ask you
1: what, do you what do you think of
3: this? Uh, I think it's great. I and think John that, John Lamb's uh, pet, pet project there. Um, I hope that pet project gets gets done. I think that that because of the uptake of the CLR of the DLR, yeah. I bet those guys are being taxed to the max to get the DLR done yeah. because yeah. C# 4 is taking a dependency on it. Yeah. He, or is it 4 is taking dependency on it? The next VB is taking a dependency on it, so I'm mm-hmm. wondering if they're not have if they didn't have to repurpose themselves to m- focus more on the DLR I'm rather very, than Ruby. I think that
2: happened a while ago. I think when I, with between Iron Python and Iron Ruby, they sort of got this larger picture of what the D, why we needed a DLR in the first place, and mm-hmm. that became the most important thing. Mm-hmm.
3: I think I think those languages. I mean, you know, I've I've heard you guys talk about it on the show about. When it always comes down to this dynamic programming thing, and yeah. there's no compiler, and how do you deal with that? And well, I think we was settled all well that good. issue.
1: It's, you, without tests, without test driven development, you're really asking for trouble. You're done. Yeah. You're done. You're baked. Yeah. So,
3: um, and it was all well and good while we were talking about Ruby, right? I remember yeah. this, this conversation right. that you guys were having was like, it's all well and because it's this theoretical thing that happens to Ruby programmers yeah until we get to c sharp four yeah and the neck and Vb next which i I'm not sure what the ver, the version yeah. number is right VbX I think they were calling it a couple years ago
2: I think it will be ten
3: but is it yeah, yeah, yeah it's gonna be ten where yeah. we have dynamic programming in c sharp it's like oh you know those those things that those little nightmares that we thought were going to be isolated to the Ruby space are not they're gonna they're well, coming we, home you the know, well, I, I tend to
1: think that the people who are into dynamic languages will use those features and i i I don't believe that the whole language is going to change to be dynamic. I mean, I think you, no, still you have, to, have I think you got to switch it on. Yeah, you got to right? switch it on. You got to dynamic know you're using it.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. but I also find it interesting that C sharp is becoming this sort of uh, everything language. There's a, C++. Little, <laughs> a little, there's a little lambda in there. There's going to yeah. be a, a little dynamic th- in there. There's a little functional in there. Like yeah. it's a very yep. interesting language. Mm-hmm. It certainly is. Uh, uh, Anders is uh, is willing to take on anything to to make that that the the language of choice. Except
3: uh, XML literals, yeah. yeah. Well, interesting. Isn't <laughs> it's true,
1: that? right? And so, they won't do
3: that. No, and I don't. And I don't. I don't. I, I actually don't think they should, because I think XML is a technology that's captured in a moment in time, and its time is probably on 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 the. I mean, we're going to have XML for a long time. Yeah. But I don't. I mean, yeah. we're kind of looking at other things. One a, a good way to look at domain specific languages is, is to look at configuration. Mm-hmm. So the other great use case for for DSLs is configuration. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could look at web, and everyone, uh, I think, is, on the shows, I've actually, have even said, web.config is essentially a DSL. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's a DSL with a lot of repetition. Yes. Um, and you can't do any logic in in, right. in, in there. Yeah.
2: You can't do any conditional branching in a web config.
3: Right. So you know, we'll see we'll see DSLs replace XML configuration more than likely, and we already see that. Oren created a language called uh, Binzer, which is a configuration language written in Boo, for the the castle Windsor. The, the guy's out of control. Orin? Yeah. Orin? Orin he's, needs to calm he down. Just
2: keeps making languages and tools, and <laughs> he's, he's, a, he's a little. Gotta get that boy married. I he's a little. That's bit, what it is. <laughs> he's a little bit hyper. <laughs> he's, he's a little bit hyperproductive. So, Orin, yeah. once
1: you get a girlfriend, all this is going to stop. Gonna end.
2: Yeah. <laughs> You're going to be home at
1: night.
3: It's not doing laundry because he's, he's gonna,
1: watching. Sing. I've never seen it. <laughs> he's <kind> of, <laughs> oh, he's going so. to end
3: up with the only girlfriend in the world that is a hyper .dot net program. Probably, and the two of them together are going to just stare into each other's eyes while their hands are working on the next They're going yeah, to work project. on open source projects yeah. together. Yeah, yeah, that yeah, will yeah. be their that will be their honeymoon. They're going to go to OSCon or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so wow. um, Binzer. you were C-sharp, saying Binzer. So so C C Sharp 4, I think, is going to go a long way and I think that Anders talked about this on Channel 9 a while ago. Yeah. Mm. He was talking and this is a really if you can go back in channel nine and see this he talked about Why he thinks people want dynamic programming, uh, typeless programming. Right. And he said that people are now becoming much more interested in dynamic construction. Mm -hmm. Um, and that means when we have static construction, we put all our code into a class file and compile it in static. Dynamic Mm -hmm. construction means we can write code that writes our code at runtime and macro expand it and Mm -hmm. eval it and run Mm -hmm. it. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what, how, that's, you know, one of the tools used when building DSLs. Yeah. And that's, we'll probably see a, Boatload of of really uh, of diverse configuration languages for .NET. You, I, you, you, we're going to see a million bad DSLs for XAML. I'm sure you will. But, yeah, but th- all freely downloaded. that always happens, right? It's just sure. like when we
2: first got GUIs and everybody made about chartreuse and yellow. Man. Man, right? Yeah,
3: yeah, and <laughs> but unfortunately, the community is going to be very, very distracted for a period of time while all of this settles and the few good DSLs kind of. Come out filter out. Well, yeah. the great thing is, these, these languages in this development, I think, are going to help clarify for the community what Oslo does. And if we went, because Oslo is basically going from nothing to external DSLs. Mm, and an right. external DSL, you got to redefine the whole language. Right. right? So we're going to have five million programmers redefining an if statement yeah. and a while loop because you got to redefine the whole language. Well, as an internal DSL, you'd build it in, in, in C or Ruby and you get their if statement and their while loop. Yeah. So I think that it's going to be this nice, it's all going to hopefully m- meet up and the .NET community will sort of come up and understand that we can do dynamic coding and dynamic programming and yes, we're going to have to get a little bit deeper into testing yeah. and hopefully we can get people using um, behavior-driven development and context specification and we can communicate the value of test-driven development better now. Because it's not just this esoteric thing that a few people with natural abilities who are non-representative of the community automatically get Mm. and understand and don't understand why everybody doesn't get it. I think we're at the level 10 years later where we can start to communicate these things now. I'm really looking forward to what do those testing or description languages or spec languages look like in the next generation of tools. And that's when I come back to Visual Studio and go, you know, wow, we're ready. I got Ruby again, and I got C Sharp 4, and Mm. I want to do the things that I've been doing while I've been off in Java world. Are you a fan of CodeGen? Code generation? Not at all. all. Eh. Um, Because I think we're talking about code generation uh, in big batches. I'm a fan of code generation in the small. So we think of ReSharper as a code generation tool. But we do micro code generation. And something that we learned from from process control um, Mm -hmm. is that we get better, we get faster, and we get higher quality when we reduce the batch size. Yeah, I, I was thinking exactly that. Less code is better. Well, less code generation is better. If you yeah. generate a giant batch of code, then you've got a giant batch of unanswered questions. Like, Plus, does all of this work?
1: I think yeah. most, most code generation is basically around repetition of a certain templates, which may be big or small, True, but, and, based, but, on,
3: based on data it's right, interesting. Right, replicated. Though, you're right. And, and, yeah. and, but it's interesting that we get two ways to solve that problem. Yeah. Run, runtime frameworks are runtimes or code generators. Yeah. And I think that because the Microsoft community is still catching up on software design, Mm -hmm. that we tend to look more to code generators than runtimes. So code generation, metaprogramming in DSLs, is nothing more than code generation. Mm -hmm. But it's in the small, it's just in time, and it's at runtime. So I'm in favor of code generation if we talk about it in specific circumstances that lead to, to what I believe are more responsible and economic and safe ways to do code generation. Not large batch code generation, but small. If it's static code generation, something like ReSharper. And if it's dynamic code generation, DSL. And Oslo, I'm pretty sure, because we're talking DSLs, it's, pretty it's going much, to do yeah. a lot of runtime code generation and, and also design time code generation. So yes and no, I can answer your question. Defense.
2: Uh, last few minutes, uh, what's the next alt.net event?
3: The next alt.net event is going to be great. Uh, we've got, we got Through Oradev, through coming here, we found uh, um, people in the European community who are... Um, Struggling or struggling, working very hard to understand and communicate open source and .net, right? And contemporary methodologies in, in .net. So we are going to be working with Skills Matter, uh, which is an open source training company in Europe, uh, all over Europe, and a uh, and Dotway, which is one of the sponsors here, yeah. to bring a bunch of the guys uh, from the alt.NET community who are ne- who are teaching workshops uh, on the road in Europe in four cities uh, in the hopefully the last two weeks of May to do some training in Open source.net and methodologies. Hmm. Um, and I think that will be the, the next big sort of hurrah. And of course, I think that we're going to have the guys who are in the gang are probably going to have more open space conferences all over. I think those yeah. are kind of taken off like wildfire all around. So, Yeah. And of um, course, you're going to be at DevTeach in a couple of weeks, right? Uh, I'm not going to be at DevTeach oh, in a couple of weeks. No. Oh. But uh, DevTeach is well in hand. The yeah. Agile track is, is got a bunch of great uh, great guys and now more Canadian, uh, Canadian speakers, which John Renee I mm-hmm. think really, really wanted. Yeah. Um, so um, DevTeach is, is, is got it all its ducks in a row. So I'm going to go do something else. Any last-minute uh, shout-outs or anything? Uh, thank you to .NET Rocks for so many years of, of being both incredibly informative and very aggravating. Thanks. <laughs> I think. Glad we could serve. <laughs> Thanks,
1: all right. All. Take Thanks. care. Thanks. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got
2: transmitter by the FCC. I'm
1: Life is hard.